Hello, hello. Welcome, welcome to the Buddhist Recovery Network podcast. I'm Valentine, and today's episode is a lovely interview with my dear friend Ajoku, one of the founders of Recovery Dharma Black Indigenous People of Color Community. Their meeting takes place Wednesdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm really excited for you to hear his story and the wisdom it offers our community. But first, I'd like to let you know about the upcoming live Dharma talk we have the first Sunday of every month, our BRN Academy. June 7th is the next month's Academy in which Vimala Sara will be giving a talk on easing out of lockdown, riding the worldly winds of change. You can find the link at BuddhistRecovery.org. The story is, the story is uh, that I am probably an extended member of um, the people uh, who raised me's family. Um, my biological mother was 15 years old, doing crack in uh, like Kansas City, Kansas. Went to Kansas City, Missouri because Kansas City, Missouri, the Missouri territories, been formerly being French, had already established a lot of their. Uh, their Catholic centers of help and refuge, St. Vincent de Paul. So the state infrastructure as it existed in 1988 just held them because the state is not actually interested in like fixing the question of, you know, orphans that cost too much. They're already a 51C. Like, you know, we'll we'll get that money back somehow. Um, So I believe that my mother is more than likely um, an aunt of an aunt. Uh, my parents are were in their late 40s, mid 50s. My father is 79 uh, now. I'm 31. Um, we're mixed uh, Yoruba, uh, so southeastern Nigerian. Um, I'm not sure if grandpa grandpa's from like Lagos or he's like actually from uh, the Republic of Benin. Um, he knows a little bit too much French. Sure, that's and what then, I thought with your name, Ajoku. Yeah. And then uh, mom's side are Caribbean uh, and deep Delta Louisiana voodoo women. So, er, but done. Introduce yourself first. Intru- how do you like to introduce yourself? Uh, well, um, I like to acknowledge all the me's that have been um, passed on. Uh, I, this might sound crazy, but this is the way I think about myself. Um, I am an orphan just among his people. Um, the original court document where my biological mother who s- surrendered me, uh, he, uh, that boy was named Sean, not S-H-W-N-S-E-A-N. I have an older sister, um, no idea where she is. If she remembers my name, it's different now. She wouldn't know who to look for. Um, but yeah, that's, one of the that's a name that my uh, biological mother knows me by, so I feel that it is valid. Um, mm-hmm. My father uh, converted to Christianity like in his early twenties, um, like a lot of uh, like a lot of us we have um, Westernized names. Um, so Christian Carl is uh, on my DD two fourteen. It's the name I wore when I deployed and served in the military. 
um, Ojoku is a cultural name uh, and moniker that my grandmother gave me. Um, I'm not sure of its translation other than to say that um, Ojo, like Olo in uh, Yoruba, mm. is owner and kun. So it's a play mm. on Olokun, which is the god of the deep waters in uh, Yoruba mythology. But it's almost to say like little version. Um, it acknowledges the Ma'afa or the, the transatlantic slave trade, specifically because I, um, I'm black, I'm African. I keep getting told what these things mean. I just get to have this awesome skin. Uh, so I will also say that in particular company, I will not let um, my Ologo name like be used, not because they're going to mispronounce it, but because I don't actually think you care. So, you know, you can call me Chris, they can call me O. Okay, thank you. Thank you for that. And actually, uh, one of the places we resonate, there are many places that we resonate, is, is that I I kind of have that label orphan. And um, I just really want to talk about that because, as we know, this our, our audience is um, people in recovery, people struggling with addiction. And you were orphaned because of addiction. Do you want to talk about why you or how you came to be adopted? So um, a lot of it, uh, a lot of it, a lot of the stories and the facts have died um, with people as they've died. Uh, my mother died when she was sixty-six. Um, my father is seventy-nine. Uh, I'm still not sure how comfortable he is in talking about that. Uh, I have again, I have a older sister who's related to me. Um, she too was born uh, with the influences of drugs during that pregnancy. Because of that, and because of uh, 1988 being kind of, I guess, what people would say is the cap off year of like the crazy 80s, um, and not like the, you know, Sunset Boulevard experience, but like the CIA bringing crack cocaine from Colombia to be exchanged for drugs into the hood, and then a higher like crime set. So this 15 year old girl, uh, had to make adult decision. Um, I'm not sure if this was a part of her just like getting away or this was her trying to make the best decision for herself or maybe she was unburdening us. Um, I'm willing to accept all three because before I got anything in me stronger than like a couple of hits of alcohol and like, you know, a blunt that it took me a week to get through. Now, 31 year old, uh, me understands what it's like to just unburden yourself and to be honest like no 15 year old should be burdened with children i'll say it very plainly i am the child of rape because if you're doing drugs and you're 15 years old and you're having sex there's either something you're not consenting to deep within or you've given so much consent to someone who has so much power over you that this is a rape environment um i understand that some women uh in conversations where they're just having a talk about that, um, the conversation comes up like, you know, like, well, what about instances of rape? And in my mind, I'm thinking, yeah, not that I praise my mother, wherever she is, whoever she is, for letting me be here, um, my sister too, wherever she is, so much as that I understand what it is to make a decision. I understand what it is to stick with a decision. Um, I understand what it is to get with a decision and, you know, be unconvinced of it, like maybe 15 minutes later. Uh, mm. You know, there's enough room in my existence to 
make room for my biological mother at whatever state or stage she is. Um, love you. Just don't know you. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll we'll come come back to that. I just want to come back to your mother um, crack, and obviously that tells me that your mother, your biological mother, would have had trauma for her to be on crack at the age of 15. Mm. It was tra trauma, definitely trauma. And we know black people have trauma, but definitely trauma. So was you born addicted? Were you, um, were you born addicted? All I know is that uh, part of me um, being surrendered was her getting into a treatment program. So it's uh, it's called Lighthouse Ministries. It's in Kansas City, Missouri. You can look it up. Uh, you know, eight one six area code. It's the only adoption center. Um, I think they're a subsidiary or like a mission of the Catholic Church uh, that has done uh, the work of transitioning mothers who I believe were like seventeen and older who wanted to keep their kids and were in a position to do that as part of their long term plan. Um, to whatever extent that is, she signed all rights away. So like, mm. I, I have no recollection of that there was no time spent with her. Um, mm. It's written down somewhere on a document, sure. that's about it. Yeah. And so just coming back to that question, like often when a, a mother is under the influence of crack or heroin or opiates and is carrying the child in a fetus, that has an impact on the fetus. And it, yeah, that maybe your tolerance level to drugs would be very different for somebody perhaps like me who was in, in the fetus, but not impacted by a mother taking drugs. Yeah. I can, I can attest to um, being new to particular substances. Um, certain things, I guess, just run in certain social circles, whether you pop it, whether you drink it, whether you got to light it up, what it takes to light it up. You know, they all have a way of doing it. And I don't know what it is, but I'm here to try it. Um, I'm going to smoke yours. So teach me what to do. Uh, but like we're day four or five in, everybody's like throwing up and I'm just going to like, are y'all done? Can I have yours? Like what's, what's going mm. on? Um, mm. And that was easy because even though I didn't necessarily under like, like I've never been to jail. Like I've skated mm. through a lot of instances, but like mm. uh, ended up in gutters um, at the same mm. time. Uh, I, I do realize that like a lot of people had to get away from me, not because I was necessarily, and I'm saying this, you know, with this mindset now, I'm not necessarily interested in manipulating people to do crazy things to like steal drugs. I'm just saying if there's drugs to do, like, can we do them together? I'll bring mm. some of mine, you do yours because mm. I figured, well, you're going to stick around until it's done. Nobody else really sticks around that long. Um, I do have to acknowledge the fact that like when I turned 15 and I realized that I was the same age as my mother when she was making these decisions, like I hated her. Oh, I hated her because I was going, I came out that same, I think I came out that summer, um, like June or July. My birthday is uh, in May. So yeah, when you I say came out, came out as queer. Is it when you say you came out, came out? Yeah, as... I came out as gay. I, I screamed yeah. it across the kitchen table. Okay. It was a whole yeah. thing. Um, yeah, and I really hated my mom because in my mind I thought, you know, I don't care if you're doing drugs. At least just get me out of this house where these people are telling me I can't be what I know that I am. Mm -hmm. um, and I understand, you know, uh, Christian context. Um, I 
have a father who is also um, suffering trauma and abuse and not necessarily because of like abuse in the sense of like hitting or screaming, but just neglect his father left. So I inherit the, I inherit the drugs. I inherit the trauma. I inherit the emotional, mm. you know, variances from this biological entity. Mm. I'm inheriting the influence of this cultural entity that is my father and our relationship. I'm watching my mother not necessarily know how to deal with male energy clashing because her father wasn't around. So mm. each of us are like, you know, coming to this conversation from completely different skill sets, but all of us are screwed up. So we're just going to be real screwed up together. So you're 15 and you come out, you scream across the table that you're gay. And at 15, did you pick up drugs? Was that when you picked up drugs? So um, I had maybe sipped a beer in the woods walking home from school in elementary school because the kid who got kicked out and he's you know the mean kid he's like hey you can be cool with me if you like drink a sip of beer and I knew that all I had to do was just hold it in the side of my mouth and spit it out later like I don't really care um my father did not drink um my mother uh she drank I guess like a glass of wine and that was like a big thing mommy's having her glass of wine mm, nothing crazy from her as far as i could tell but um i do know that come 16 i have a job uh at 16 i'm learning that the way i'm gonna get out of high school with a diploma and away from my parents is if i play this game so at 16 um i'm not hiding that i'm gay but I'm making a very stern, you know, like I'm going to go to church, but like, I'm just going to be mean to everybody. Um, but I know at the beginning of the school year, I found out uh, what Adderall was. Mm. My brain was going a mile a minute anyway. You know, mm. I might as well feel like it the rest of, like throughout the rest mm. of me. Um, maintain grades. I was told that it was a study drug. Um, I went to a private uh, school the black kid in my class had a lot to prove. So mm. I needed to do drugs to make sure that I kept good grades so my parents would stay mm. off my back, keep my job so I can make the money to go do the other stuff. And how were they when you came out about being gay? What was their reaction? We fought. Mm. Mm. Um, there had been, I think, there are three incidences where I remember my father like striking me. Um, now, I'm not saying this in defense of his actions, but I, I knew that I was trying to get a reaction out of him because I got nothing from him. It was either the Bible or the definition of masculinity as it was handed down to him from a man who was not there. And mm. I tried to talk to mom about it and she's just like, you know how your father is. I'm like, yeah, but he's not your father. That's your husband. Can you say mm. something to him? You know, and I love my mother, but I, and then the think the thought occurs. No, I'd much rather like bring him to the point where if he is hitting somebody, he'd hit me because he raised his voice to my mother one time mm. while they were upstairs. Um, and I instinctively go to the kitchen to grab a knife, not because mm. I want to kill my father, but because I know that my dad has a mean hook. Mm. 
And if I'm going to get her away from him, like I'm just going to just throw the knife and then she and I are going to run. I wasn't necessarily always terrified of him so much as that I was terrified of getting him to that point. Okay, so, you, yeah, I mean, you grew up, well, your first trauma, that stamp of abandonment from your, well, the first trauma would be in the fetus with your mother using crack and that impacting you, coming out into the world, being dysregulated, stamp of abandonment. And then, you know, growing up in a household where the your father demonstrates masculinity through the Bible or being top down heavy. So that impact, you know, I know you say Adderall, you know, and the pressure of having to do well at school, going to a private school, being the only black kid in the school. How do you think that's really shaped you? Um. So you know how the saying goes, uh, the people who are screaming the loudest, I don't care what anybody thinks, is the most terrified out of everyone in the room. Mm -hmm. um, I heard that before I started screaming. So I just mm -hmm. became terrified and quiet. That meant, sure. however, that the only outlet for terror and fear and this like mm -hmm. over sense of like anxiety, that if I don't mm -hmm. stay on all my P's and Q's, that it's all gonna fall to crap. Right. But all I was doing was maintaining a lie, thinking that the minute I get out of high school, I'll just figure out life. Well, even though my father and I were still not on the best of terms at 17, he sat me down and he explained economics to me. Um, I had to accept the fact that at that moment, this man was teaching me the American money game, uh, how race is involved in the money game, how. And he and then he again, he asserted his masculinity um, in the format. And please excuse my language, but at least you're not one of these sissies and then uh, that can be recognized in the street. I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, well, you don't act like a faggot. Mm. So my masculinity and the aspect of by which I enter uh, enter into um, my new my my uh, this family that's supposed to accept me. Like I look like a to them in 2000 what, six? In 2006, like, I'm still rocking um, uh, Dickies with, like, a like a tank top, mm. pulled down over, high top shoes. I skated. Mm. It was California. Like, I just, you know, like, I was not mm. a fashionable kid. I was outside, like, running around, you know, just mm. doing dumb stuff in the street. Um, so it was weird to see how, what masculinity means to me my relationship with men, my relationship with uh, authority figures, my relationship with male authority figures, uh, my, my double natured sense of revealing. Because the one thing I learned um, is that I'm not gonna always, you know, 16, 17, 18, I'm not always gonna run into young people my age who understand what homosexuality is. Mm. And by that, I mean, yeah, I'm telling you I'm gay because I want you to know that if you see me staring at somebody, that's what's going on. Whereas for them, it's, oh, you want to be with me? And I'm like, no, I thought we were friends. But now I understand that in revealing that to you, I have changed our friendship dynamic. I can't blame a 16-year-old for regurgitating what was pushed into them. Or maybe they're just someone who just doesn't like it and doesn't know how to articulate that. To another so what six, was you terrified of? What was it you said? What was it that you were terrified of? Oh, everybody's leaving. 
and I can see you leaving. You're just here because I'm either fulfilling some role, um, you feel good because you're around me, or I have a sad story and it's easy to feel sorry for me. And I don't really cause any drama. I just want to sit here and not feel alone and we can do drugs together. But you'll get tired of that after a while. I'm, I'm like a summer record. I come out early spring. You love me. You dance to me. You take pictures. You'll repost me next year when it comes time to like when, when Facebook tells you, oh, yeah, remember this guy? Sure. You won't call. You're not going to mm. look me up. Um, mm. If you're in the same mm. city as me and you're horny, you might look me up. But mm, mm. other than that, I don't know what to expect from you. But I will give all of myself just to keep you while you are here. You will give all of yourself. Okay. So tell me about your drug history. How, what happened? How did it um, get out of control? So uh, I have an aunt who, um, I have an aunt and an uncle who both have died as a result of uh, drug use. Um, I have an uncle who I met, I think, twice in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, both times were when I was under third grade because I have absolutely no recollection of him. Um, mm-hmm. There is a picture of him at an event where I know I was and I am told mm-hmm. that I'm like three years old around that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know us, we write dates and who's going on and what year in the back mm-hmm. in grandma's album. So like, that's how I know it's there. Um, I don't hear from him. He never sends anything for Christmas. I can't write him. And whenever they say his name, you know, they, they say it really quiet. So he's a secret. I'm a secret. I want to know more about you. And I found out everything when he died as a result of um, systemic organ failure, not because he was using, but because he used so much coming back from uh, Vietnam, getting a hold of the heroin and transporting the heroin back in the coffins of uh, discarded American soldiers. Um, it was before 1988. So, I mean, there's that increased instance of racism and with the nuance of, uh, uh, mental health or just shell shock, even becoming a conversation within the scientific community, he's a black man, you know, putting drugs in American soldiers coffins coming back from war. Like you are going to jail or at the very least you're getting court-martialed and we never want to talk to you again. Um, but he used so much that it, it screwed with his brain and he had to be on assistance for the rest of his life. Uh, I have another, um, aunt who the last time I saw her, um, we were in Michigan. Um, I am with her son and daughter, um, and my cousin, I'm in the corner seat. We had just, we had just left the church. Um, my cousin pulls over and sees somebody in an abandoned house. Now, what I don't recognize is that he's recognizing the signs of his mother. Um, mm. And she walks up directly to the car and my cousin knows it, her mother's sideways, but I've never seen anybody like, gr- like aunt level and up, like mm. in the family structure. I've never even seen one of you do anything more except like a, like a glass of wine or a, like communion juice. Mm. Like that's all the wine I've seen any of you drink, mm. but she's here split. And then she's saying, well, I know grandpa, like I know my mom died. When, when is the funeral? And it got real quiet. And then my cousin starts crying. Mom, it was today. Oh, no, it can't be today. And I'm, I, I feel really awkward, not because, it, you know, she's high, but because I see what this is doing to the people around me. Mm. Right. And I'm thinking, I don't know what's going on. I don't know who this woman is. And then she looks at me. She goes, 
oh, hey, is your mom here? Now, that freaked me out. Mm. But then I recognized that my cousin's looking back at me. She goes, oh, yeah, he doesn't know who you are. He's never seen you like this. Oh, this is your aunt. So I saw how everybody in the car was feeling what was going on. I have no idea. I get brought into the situation because I found out she is my mother's sister. So your biological, to, your biological mother's sister. My my adopted mother's sister. Your daughter's mother's sister. Okay. Yeah. Mm. So we're in a different city. Um, I had mm. flown to uh, meet my parents at this uh, uh, at this. Um, yeah, we were in Flint, Michigan. Um, mm. So I meet them maybe four hours at a hotel. Um, I still have like my army uniform on. Uh, I had to leave training a little bit early. I never have a grown up jog. I don't know what it is to take time off. So like I had two days to go down there and come back because by law, she's my grandmother. Like they give you the days off. Um, but I tried to have a conversation with my mother at that point. I'm like, wait a minute. You didn't tell me that that is why I never saw them. But what do you want me to tell you? I was dealing with you being gay. I was trying to keep your father from hitting, like from knocking all of your teeth out. And I'm like, okay. Here's another person trying to help me and doesn't know what to do with themselves. Mm. Again, I'm mad at her because I thought at least mm. you're my mom. Like, aren't you like, can't we like, can we go to a shelter and just get away from this dude? Mm. Can I don't know what it is for her to try, you know, to stand by her husband or anything like that. Um, I just, mm. I need to be fixed, but I don't know what's wrong with me. I don't know how to articulate that. Y'all keep taking me to Jesus and he's not answering any of my prayers. So what do I do? So I'm just mad all the time. And so you're mad. What do you do? What What are the drugs that you turn to? What don't I do is really the question. Um, no, tell us what you did do. MDMA, uh, mm-hmm. acid, mm-hmm. blots. Uh, mm-hmm. That's the form in which I took it. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't get into crystal meth use until I was. How old was I? I've skipped so many birthdays. It's kind of sad. <laughs> um, okay, yeah. What age uh, did you start? What age did you start picking up? Um. So, like, I I had a guy that I'd like to go. Like, I I call my starting age when like I had my first dealer and I had a cell phone that I had to hide so I can text mm-hmm. him and all this other stuff. And um, how old were you? Sixteen. Sixteen. Yeah. Yep, yeah. Had my own job. I was putting money away, mm-hmm. selling weed on the side and all that. Not only did I have the drug that, you know, uh, that made me feel good, but now I've got enough to sell. And now mm. people want to hang out with me because I'm selling sure. it. So like yeah, yeah. money to be made even then. Sure, um, sure. Now, joining the military, I knew that like I didn't want to go to prison. Like I'm and mm. definitely not military prison. Like screw mm. that. So um, I just drank a lot. and I drank all different types of mm. stuff. I knew mm. I knew the differences between uh, northern and uh, southern Irish whiskeys and gins. Um, How I knew old more were about you gin. when you went into the military? How old were you? I turned uh, 18 before I went. Right. And what was that like for a black gay man? Or you wouldn't, I wouldn't even call you a man for a black gay young person to join the military. What was that like? I felt useful. And I was already used to people yelling me and telling me that I wasn't shit. So like, 
I mean, I'm making money. You can't hit me because that's illegal. Like, just yell at me. I'll be okay. Um, then I figured out that, you know, there were other people who, in the structure of going through uh, basic training, needed me to, to perform. So I realized that they're part of the natural social instinct is to do the best for yourself so that your usefulness for the tribe is increased. But in advanced social cultures, we say it as be the best you so you can offer that to the world. Mm-hmm. But I only know that I'm a piece of shit and going to hell. So mm-hmm. I'm figuring out that I'm good at certain things. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't need to maintain a lie because mm-hmm. technically speaking, um, if you call me gay or whatever, I just get to fight you. Mm-hmm. Right. And you, mm-hmm. it's a, it was the, uh, the era of don't ask, don't tell. Mm-hmm. I was already getting beat up at school because either people were stealing stuff from me or they were doing this or they were doing that. So, I mean, you know, mm-hmm. I'll be all right. But then again, um, I didn't was know you what out it was. In the military? Was you out in the military? At first, no. Um, mm. I saw how I saw how that became such an easy target mm. that it made it difficult for me to even sympathize with the people who did come out. Because mm. in my mind, I'm thinking, why would you make life so much harder for yourself? Mm. Right. Mm. Like, like that does not make any sense to me. So mm. I can't empathize with it. Mm. And plus, I can't even be seen having conversations of why did you do that? Because then that mm. would make other people think again. I think everybody's mm. watching me. You mm. all don't really like me. So mm. I will just sneak through the back and do what I need to do. Interesting, because, you know, I want I want to come back to this thing about being uh, gay within the black in certain black communities where it's so unacceptable and then you went into the military where it's where it was and at that time still so unacceptable it still is there's a bit more acceptance but just coming back to how did you find your identity within that black community that was rejecting your gayness rejecting your masculinity so um Some drag queens got a hold of me. Uh, <laughs> they saw me going to, they knew I was in the military because I had a piece of shit haircut. Uh, mm-hmm. And I had not learned, um, again, like I, my father does not have a lot of facial hair. I am mm-hmm. not his biological son. So this mm-hmm. was a surprise. Um, mm-hmm. And I was getting razor bumps real bad. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm just now starting to talk to guys. And it was weird because something I didn't learn. You know, mm-hmm. I learned there. Uh, I was, stationed in um fort lewis uh washington state and i knew that there was a bar i knew that nobody else would go there i knew you had to go i'd had to leave like an hour and a half early just to get there at a reasonable hour um stay the night at a hotel or with somebody as i started meeting people but uh they knew what was going on um they knew that i was putting on a a front i couldn't do drugs so i was just there to drink myself you know to stupidity at some point, someone would go through my wallet, see that I have a military ID, and instantly the impact factor of, oh, young gay guy trying to live his life out you know, while being closeted in the military, I'll get a cab home. Mm. I'm even manipulating people while I'm like stone cold, passed out on your floor. Like, you know, I know mm. what I'm doing. Um, but this one girl, she sang a lot of Frankie Beverly. She wasn't a Janet singer. She didn't sing... Uh, 
she didn't sing um at a davis like she didn't that was her thing frankie Beverly. just and i loved listening mm-hmm. to her she she was tall and so i guess a lot of my reaction to her at first like what the hell is going on like you are taller than me i've heard your mm-hmm. real voice like you have a mm-hmm. deeper voice in me like is this just a joke to you like it just seemed funny but i enjoyed it mm-hmm. so i didn't feel like i was objectifying her mm-hmm. in a way i had a lot of envy for her because you know who she is and you use those pronouns when she's in drag or in mug mm-hmm. she's like yeah like but when you see me as a man you know i have a kid i live mm-hmm. in this community like out there mm-hmm. i have to do this so I connected with somebody else who was leading a double life. Mm. And I already looked up to you. You're on stage. I'm over here passing out at the bar. Like, like you mm. have a step up in my opinion. Um, mm. But then uh, I got invited to, uh, I got invited to tea. I met the other girls. Um, mm. And I got asked a whole bunch of questions. And at mm. first I'm thinking, I mean, I don't get the y'all are going to rape me vibe, but I don't understand why you older black queer queer people are asking about my life like you give a fuck. But then I hear their stories, how they grew up in church, how their dad hit them and how they did this. And, uh, you know, it was harder back then. And so I'm like, all right, okay. I don't necessarily, you know, like I'm not necessarily moved by the gesture of somebody um, trying to help me so much as that I am moved that someone was willing to admit to me that they went through similar shit. And that's where I began to realize that in the black gay community, there are things that we go through that nobody else goes through. And sometimes I feel like it's deliberately overlooked because we as a people, um, diasporatic Africans uh, living wherever else we are and the Africans living there, like the way we live life, I feel a lot of our cadence, a lot of our Um, Our swag is in the way that we deal with trauma. So yes, we can be over the top, but that over the top is like the perfect like place for art to take to like to take hold. So then I watched I watched these uh, these pageant girls, um, these show queens, you know, uh, the ones that were doing pageants, the one the trans girls that were saving up all their money just to you know maybe possibly compete at a show, lose the show, and go home to I don't know, the one hotel that they bought because they thought if they won, they'd have enough money to pay rent. So a lot of them were into drugs just to get over losing, um, just to perform. Uh, There were a lot of people abusing like alcohol really heavy to the point that um, they were trying new drugs just to shake them out of their drunk. Uh, I saw a lot of people just trading off to maintain. And this just made sense to me. You know, oh, I've done too much of this. Let me just recalibrate with that. There's no self-care. Um, and unfortunately, like, I don't mean for this to sound like, you know, all uh, young, queer, gay, trans um, performers of whatever capacity are going through this so much as that the benefit of drag culture comes from us being really, really screwed up and some healing taking place. And now there's this narrative. But... Did you ever do drag? Did you ever do drag? No. It it never appealed. It just never really appealed to me because I I see drag queens. I see drag queens from two perspectives. There's the, what I call a show queen that will do a pageant, that will get a gown made and all this. Like we'll spend good money to do all that, but they cannot, you know, ad lib 
say, an open mic, they can't run karaoke and consistently bring people in. Um, this is a terrible, uh, this is a terrible equivalency, but the difference between an oiran and a geisha in Japan is such that a geisha knows poetry, can sing, and all of this. An oiran is wearing so much makeup and so many accessories that, you know, she looks pretty and she can do this and she can do that, but she's got all that, you know, all that extra stuff on. She's here to do this and they're there to do that. You love both of them and you go to one one week and you go to another another week. I want to thank you for that. I want to circle back to something you said and it was something that that the the black gay community go through things that other people don't go through. And I was wondering, what are those things that the black gay community experience that other communities don't experience? The best way I've heard it articulated by someone else is that uh, we're never really sure what you're mad at. You either hate me because I'm black or you hate me because I'm gay or that I'm a gay black person. Like, you know, one of three is in, one of three is in play, but it's all me. Mm, and sure. it's to the point where, and it's, it's to the point where we have to be able to recognize that at whatever level it exists at. For mm -hmm. example, um, I've worked jobs where uh, there were older people um, working there, um, older black people. And this is factory work. Um, so there's men and women working. Uh, there was this one woman I know. She, she was kind of like an angry aunt, like an angry auntie. Like she'd talk crazy to you, but if something went wrong, like she'd get down and help you fix it. She had her own set of tools. You know, she was on her job. And so for me, I'm like, all right, um, you're easy to talk to. I can actually work with you. You take the time to help me do my job because again, I'm only here to make money so I can leave and go do drugs. Like, I'm really glad that someone is investing in me, helping me get high in the long run. Cool, 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 cool. Um, at this point, uh, I was really starting to um, feel the effect of like prolonged drug use uh, of particular substances, MDMAs or, uh, or like crystal meth or cocaine. Um, so I'd like promise myself, okay, Sunday is my just weed and, uh, and vodka day or whatever I was drinking, right? Like just weed and vodka. So come Monday, I've eaten, I've thrown up, I've done what I needed to do. I'm still sweating, but you know, I can get through Monday. Um, anyway, so I'm new here. Uh, some people at the factory have been friends for a while. Secrets got out. And I hear her say one day, he's like, yeah, well, that's wrong with him. Over there fucking a man and having a wife at the same time. You're not cool with gay people. So now I instantly know I can never have this conversation with you. You can't look me up on Facebook. There is no asking me for my phone number. There is no asking me what I'm doing on the weekends. You know it. No inviting me anywhere. We work. Because not so much that I'm afraid of you, but I already hear you talking about somebody that I don't know and outing him, which means you're going to do the same thing to me. And I'm new here. I don't know if you have the power to get me fired. And I'm not really sure, um, working in Texas, <laughs> that the EEOC guidelines are going to be maintained by HR. Again, you might be the one to tell it, but now that it's out, what am I going to do with that? I really just want to go to work so I can do drugs and you're making it difficult for me to go and get high. So I'm just not going to say anything because I care more about being high than me identifying with my sexuality. Again, reinforcing uh, 
negative stereotypes and, and reinforcing negative stereotypes about myself and any other person who would live their truth. However, when I saw the kid, the guys at work who you couldn't tell or they're always in tight jeans or they're mm. constantly talking about a particular show that only comes around mm. in this. They're never hanging out with the guys at the smoke shack. Like, mm. I'm not mad at you. Like, in ways, I wish it was easier for me to just tell them, screw you. But again, none of you are hanging around. While you're here, mm, we'll be cool. I know there's no real investment in you getting, again, I am thinking that there's no real investment in anyone at any point for any reason, mm. giving me and offering me love and showing me kindness. Because the one person who had that opportunity to do it, my biological mother, like, where the hell is she? So I'm just, this is this, so this is the snowball effect of this one particular issue of abandonment and my inability to connect and then going through the natural phases of making friends, arguing with friends, disagreeing with so friends, that, not talking yeah. to friends. That stamp of abandonment, as you say, is, is, is very cool. That stamp of abandonment, you know, when you were born and being handed over. But I, I want to, and that it's, yeah, people don't, people don't understand, you can never understand that unless, unless that's been one's experience and how that can inform our lives. But just really wanted to circle back to this thing about just, uh, yeah, you know, the fact about being black, male and gay. And I think there's another factor that we, we know that actually uh trans black trans women are where they are more likely to be murdered than in than any other sector uh in society and not and more likely to be murdered they're the more most horrific murders so not even more likely to be murdered they are the most yeah, horrific and savage murders it's something to prove um mm. so Depending on where you're from and depending on whether you grew up, you know, with uh, like with the hood right outside or maybe mm. you and your family like lived in, mm. I guess, like a like an upper white collar neighborhood or maybe everybody around Jews of every different color and you're all crazy. It doesn't matter. You know that there are three things that do not run in the street. Disrespect, mm. thieves and imposters. By definition, mm. being a black man and doing anything other than maintaining the standard stereotype of black male masculinity. I'm an impersonator. Mm. I'm fronting. You ain't no real man. That's what they love to say to gay black people. Whether you're, whether you're masculine and they find out that you have a boyfriend in Ireland or you've got, you know, pumps and uh, like 40 inch Brazilian hair in, you're not a real mm. man. What are you doing? So now you're discounted not only from being a human being because now I exist outside of the gender spectrum, you feel that not only am I lying, but I'm making you look bad by even existing. So then it becomes a question of, well, you won't go away on your own, so I'll just get you out of here. And I will gain the approval of my peers by hurting you and hurting you real bad. Mm. So um, what did you think of Moonlight? Just, just you know, kind of moving on as we got time. There's still lots and lots. Of, I think we're going to have to have a part two, part two, but... What did you think of Moonlight? Moonlight that won the Oscars a couple of years back. I've never told anybody this, and I was surprised that it happened. I cried. Mm. Mm. I cried hard, and I had waited till like uh, it got out of theater um, mm. 
downloaded it on uh, on Google. Like I rented it in the high mm. definition. Um, mm. I started it at uh, like while I was um, waiting for another plane to take me home. Um, mm. I saw that it just come up on Google. I was like, oh, let's see what this is because I do, I do like a lot of movies. I don't mm. necessarily like queer movies because nobody mm. in there looks like me, or if there is someone who mm. looks like me, like they're a trope. Mm. Like they're they're either overly like you know effeminatized or they're uh, or they're portraying like they they Tyler Perry them. They get somebody mm. real dark and he's DL and he's mean and he hits you and he doesn't love you. Mm. Uh, I'm tired of that. So mm. um, I was also interested in understanding how a straight man who has played um, male sex symbols in other films and in other uh, TV series and had to fight being a black man, mm. you know, raising up and being, uh, he was on what, uh, West Wing, the guy who played mm. this, or House of Cards, there we go, he was on House of Cards. Mm. So like, I've seen him before, I'm like, I wonder what he's gonna do with this role, like, is he gonna mm. chop it up? Did he even want to do this movie? Because I'm, I'm interested in the way he brings himself into it. and. Mm. It was so raw, uh, and it was pretty too. It was a well-made and uh, aesthetically pleasing film. Mm. Um, the instances of like the parallels with water. Mm. Oh my god! Oh my goodness! Mm. Because if you were raised here in the Christian context, um, mm. I don't care where, like from Canada all the way down to like uh, Bahia, Cuba, or Bahia, um, Brazil, uh, unless you practice like the secret and ancient religions on top of like a Christian front, you've been baptized. That's the only time that black people ever get in a body of water and are celebrated for like the idea of rebirth, even though it exists in a white supremacist context. And yet here it is showing up in a gay movie and touching that part of me that never really got to be acknowledged. Because when I got baptized, I felt like, a, I felt bad because I knew I was lying, but what was I gonna do, not get baptized? Mm. I had no choices. So it made the experience inauthentic, but then I regained all of that through a movie. Mm. Crazy. Mm. 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 Thank you for that. So how, you know, it's as we, we know out there on the scene, there's lots of alcohol, there's lots of drugs. It's part of the, the culture of the scene. You got wrapped up in that. How did you get your recovery? How did you get out of that? How did you get out of the military? How did you get recovery um i ran out of options uh so like i'm slumming it um get a job here ruin it because i i'm thinking you know i'll get a job thinking let me just do this job until i get something else a couple paychecks stack up i'm smoking weed at home i'm bringing weed to work i'm not smoking it at work but then i have a bad day Half of it's already rolled up. Let me just go ahead and kill the rest of it. So I'm back off to the races. Uh, because I was so dissatisfied um, with the state of my life, but all I knew was how to like put money back together. I don't know how to live. And then that catches up with me. Um, I must have been on like maybe a five day run and I'm coming down real hard. Um, I don't know. Uh, what other drugs are like, but like on speed or anything like crystal methods, when you come down and you're, it's almost like you're fighting sleep, but it hits right here. Mm -hmm. You're tired. You're trying to, at the very least, like I'm trying to make sure that I lay down in this chair so I can just go to sleep. But then the thought comes, you're going to die. Mm -hmm. And then I think to myself, yeah, cool. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. I'm comfortable right now. This chair is cold. Mm. I just peed. So, I mean, I won't. <laughs> Whoever's going to come and clean me up. Like, I didn't piss myself at a minimum. Like, I'm a convenient, but I'm a convenient body to put in the bag right now. No one's going to make a fuss. Um, I don't even think I had my wallet. You can put mm. unidentified black man in the newspaper. Someone will write a poem about it. Republican's going to use it in his, I don't know, his his agenda to fix the urban areas of town. I'm just going to be, I will be re-entered into the American system the same way I got here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I just went to sleep. I woke up pissed off that I didn't die. Um, and didn't have a phone then. So I must've gone to a library or like some, some place where like uh, information just going to randomly get. So I must've gone to a library. Uh, someone handed me uh, a tract. It was for a Christian version of 12 Step. Um, where it was being held uh, was in a church, but that church also an hour later had traditional NA um, and AA like on alternating days throughout the week. Uh, so got there too late for the Christian thing, thankfully got introduced to AA, um, the person who just invited me in for coffee. He's like, do you want to just at least sit down for an hour? Cool. Yeah, I'm already tired. Um, then he comes back and he's like, look, you might not be an alcoholic, but you know, Tuesdays and Wednesdays at seven 30, you can come and get a cup of coffee, chill for an hour and go on. Stuck around, found out that I'm not an alcoholic. I'm an addict. And not that I believe personally in the identifying aspects of it. It's their traditions. Mm-hmm. They keep them. It's what keeps them together. They help mm-hmm. me. I'm not, I have nothing to say to, to say about it. Um, mm-hmm. That made me realize that I needed long-term treatment. Um, being around addicts who, um, being around black addicts whose sisters, uh, you know, they might've done different drugs. Maybe one of you is an alcoholic, but that one, she's bad off on crack. And her kids are real bad off. And they're like much younger than me when they got started on the heavy set. So like, I was convinced. I was like, okay, I'm not alone in my being screwed up, but clearly, clearly I skated by on a lot of things. Um, plus, I mean, you know, they, they make you get health insurance. Um, it was cheap. I didn't work. Like I qualify for all the poverty crap. You know, this is, this is a form that somebody already has. They just need me to sign my name. So it was really easy for me to get in there and do what I need to do. Um, was this after the military? Was this after the military? Mm. Yeah. So this was, uh, three years ago. So I'm 27, 28 at this point. Mm. Uh, what really hit me is that I started to see how a lot of the, um, a lot of the distance and a lot of the disconnect that has come through the longstanding, uh, trauma and effects, uh, that are going on with drugs in the black community Mm. happened so much earlier. So Mm. I do not get into arguments with people over Facebook. when it comes to the issue of why the opioid epidemic that is disproportionately affecting not only middle-class males, but middle-class white males and white males of all social spectrums and economic spectrums, mm. is happening to their kids. So everybody's talking about it. But when I'm at these recovery centers, I'm watching these, uh, they call them uh, repeats. 
he he started he was exposed to NA or AA or to a treatment center when he was 12 uh, uh 21 got some time under his belt got married had kids screwed it up 32 you know got his life back together started a business um was hosting meetings was sponsoring all kind of people fell off now he's in his 40s all these teeth are gone uh you know his his family's disconnected and on top of that like they don't have the money to be taking him in and all of this other stuff like it's one thing to be dealing with an addict in your family, but I'm broke on top of that. Because mm, I don't, I'm not saying all addicts deal, but a, a whole lot of us have. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, <sighs> I mean, it's interesting you're saying. I, I was just speaking to uh, Dr. Gabor Mate, and he was saying, you know, in a way, the opioid crisis has become a crisis because it's impacting white people. It's, it was impacting black people impacting indigenous people but it's not a crisis when it impacts us only becomes a crisis when it impacts white people or even the disconnect when you have to like for example um when i make it a point to say that um cocaine and crack cocaine was introduced to the black communities via the cia instantly Mm -hmm. it becomes a Mm -hmm. that can't be true that you're making that up that this Mm -hmm. is that uh these are these um what's that that fake news i'm like Mm -hmm. they admitted it you can go to them and they will tell you that they did it. Well, why would they do that? It must be a cover-up. Yes, everything's being covered up for you. You. You get the pretty version of it. You get asked, why did this happen? You're not them. Were you hanging well, you out with them? you can look at it as being reintroduced because we know that as slaves, when we worked in the plantation fields, that was one of the things that kept us going was the cocoa leaf. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So being reintroduced to us, but how did you leave the military? How long was you in the military? Uh, so I did my standard four, uh, and then two in IRR. Mm-hmm. Just drank through it. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So we were talking about the ma- the, the aspects of masculinity, um, uh, relationships with men, uh, mm-hmm. not necessarily sexually, but like friendships, platonic mm-hmm. friendships whether they be gay, bi, straight, or trans, whatever. Like Mm -hmm. someone you're actually, you have like things in common with. Um, Romantic or sexual dynamics in relationships with men. Mm -hmm. How I view men, how I feel men view me. Mm -hmm. What I do with that information. Mm -hmm. Um, I wanted so desperately, so, so desperately to like have a boyfriend. But then every person I ever talked to, I was like, listen, I don't know how to date you. Mm-hmm. I think you're cute. I like the way I feel around you. I do stupid mm-hmm. things, but I promise you, if I do anything dumb, I'm going to do it to myself. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Now they're gonna—they're willing to go along with that. Um, I met this dude. He was a couple ranks higher than me. Um, I didn't know. Uh, I, what I did know is that he went to um, a different portion of our command building that requires key card access above a certain like a uh, um, position level. So it was mm-hmm. natural that like he would have the rank to like to mi- to match that. Um, I didn't really care about that. You know, he paid attention to me. Um, he told me that he doesn't like the way I act um, when I'm drinking. And I'm like, I'm not mean to you. He's like, no, you're not mean to me. Like you're mean to you. Mm-hmm. And that did not make any sense. I was like, yeah, of course I'm mean to me. Do you know me? I know me and I'm mean to me. You're going to be mean to me pretty soon. Don't worry, it's going to happen. Mm. Um, he 
tried to coax me out of uh, um, drinking so heavily. Um, mm. There was moderation. There was, uh, he got me into doing yoga. Mm. I mean, I liked it, but I didn't like that he liked to go and do it early in the morning. I'm having a hangover. <laughs> was it a black he guy or a white guy? Was it a black guy or a black guy or white guy? Irish. Okay. Yeah. They're all black so, Irish. <laughs> well, he, no, long red hair. And that's another thing that, um, mm. that's another thing that I had to like learn to internalize is that not that I was like looking for him specifically, not that he mm. um, was like what I was into with other people mm. um, as far as like his looks were concerned. So much is it like he sat through me and my rants. Um, I mean, I see it for what it, I see the codependency now, mm. um, but his intention, whether they mm. came from selfishness or actual true, like a true, you know, mm. genuine concern, like my life did a little better. Uh, mm. But mm. somebody told, and it became a question of, well, how do we deal with this? Do we deny it? And mm. we can't see each other anymore? No, no, no. We'll sneak around and, and then it became a hassle. Because we both had to adjust our schedules and, you know, try and do everything we can so both of us can keep our jobs. So we're actively going to work, mm. you know, separating ourselves and then coming back to an apartment where we're trying to rebuild everything we just broke. Mm. Mm. That was why you were in the military. Yeah, yeah. That was mm. towards the uh, the end of my last year there. Um, mm. Part of that was the decision where I, um, I didn't re-enlist. I knew that, like, I actually wanted to be in an open like in a acknowledged and public relationship. Mm. Um, I knew that that meant that I had to like go to either like a city or like a major city or a region where it would be accepted or mm. it's like, you know, not that big of a deal. So couldn't go home, couldn't go to where a lot of my family was. And, uh, you know, so I'm constantly going all these places to try and find acceptance. And the little bit of acceptance that I do find is unfortunately tainted by the fact that a lot of us are not dealing with our crap. Mm. So what would you be saying to uh, other black gay men? What would you be saying to them? What would, you know, especially young black boys who are coming out as gay, you know, 10, 11, 12, what would you be saying to them? Be careful what you say yes to and be resolute in what you say no to. Um, and let me be clear about that. When you spend money, that's yes. When you give time, that's yes. When you uh, compromise your morals, when you hide your emotions because you're afraid to um, be your true and authentic self, that is a yes and a no to this person. Yes to you, I'm going to conform and no to your inner truth. Now, mm. let me be clear. If you are under the age of 18 and listening to this, and you don't have a job, you don't have a family member, you don't have someone that you know you can go to their house and be safe tonight, if you end up either coming out or somebody says something, you know your family situation best. I am sorry. I am so sorry that you have to go through this, but I am telling you now, this inner truth you have to hold on to. I gave mine away and now I'm having to tell you that it's worth you holding on to it. I'm sorry you might have to put a lid on it. I'm sorry that you have to get by because, you know, you're a minor. You can't economically help, like, save yourself. Um, 
for those of you that are maybe on the street. You're a little bit more adult, so I'll talk to you like I'll talk to you that way. Homie, you know nobody gets out of it clean. And those of us who do get out of it, we're lucky to get out of it the way we do. Trans women are dying by the dozen. Trans trans women, um, if you're a working girl, either stack this money up or get a job at a bank. You have the potential to be shot at both, but at least you can get a tax return on something legal. Get yourself into a program. I don't care. I do not care if you don't have the long hair, if you have to come in and address you stole. Get in front of somebody and start telling the truth. If you're a working girl, you have to lie. You can't be telling exactly what's going on with you. you. I know you'd love to say it, but you can't. The police are out there looking for you, and some dude with a wife might get caught on camera, and he's going to come to find you and kill you. You don't have to believe me. You more than likely know somebody that it's already happened to. I don't have to prove anything. You are living the reality of this. And I'm also sorry that the people who are doing it to you look just like you, might be related to you, might have threatened you with it. Believe them. I don't care if they said it in anger. I don't care if they're trying to scare you out of it. It came out their mouth. At a minimum, they felt that that's something that you deserve to hear. But this is our choice. This is our choice that we have to make daily. Are we going to wake up every day and say that this is the means by which I experience the world? This color is absolutely nothing more than a spectrum of light. The opinion about it, they get to have theirs like I get to have mine. But since I live in this skin, let me live in it and live freely, live honestly, learn to live honestly. A lot of us had to learn to hide it. And being honest just feels like lying. And what would you what would you be saying to um, to all of our listeners? Because our listeners will be really diverse. It'll be people struggling with addiction, people from people with different genders, sexuality, race. But, you know, the one thing that will be pulling all our listeners together is this struggle with addiction, alcoholism, obsessive compulsive behaviors. What would you be saying to them? If you're an addict caught up in addiction, active addiction, active drinking, active whatever your thing is. You're not dead if you're listening to this podcast, but I'm damn sure if you're, if you're actively using whatever your thing is, you're not living. I'll say it again. You're listening to a podcast. You are hearing the words coming out of my mouth. You're not dead, but you are not living. What does the Bible say? Choose life that you might live. Don't believe in Jesus, but he apparently either he or somebody who, who, who likes him said something like that. It works for me. And you have to define what life is. You have to live it. So you might as well have an opinion about it. You might as well do some work to make it what you think it's going to be. It's not all going to be gun. It's not always going to be roses. Um, many a day I wake up wondering why I'm still doing recovery. Just getting out of bed. The idea of getting out of bed and being me for one more day terrifies me for about five minutes, five minutes. I wiggle my toes, I count to 10. All that stuff I learned in elementary school, I mean, hey. <laughs> Seriously, I, um, I sometimes have to remind myself that what I am doing, the rent I pay, the bed I sleep in, the food that I have to cook, the organic food that costs extra, but I probably need to be doing that because I'm 31. This metabolism is not going to last. My favorite, uh, hang on, we're going to take a trip. My favorite necklace 
in the world. This. Mm. It's a skull the same color as me. Mm. The skull is always smiling because it's already accepted that it's all going to be smiles at the end. White people, Latinos, Polynesians, Micronesians, Africans, South Africans. You know what I mean by that. Indians, Asians, East Asians. Look, we don't get an opportunity to have honest conversations with each other while we're going through our stuff. But since you're a human being and prone to the same biological impulses, because, I mean, we can trade organs, but we can't trade honestly. That's just crazy to me. So check it out. I don't speak on behalf of all black people. I get to be one of us and I will speak this one's truth chill and figure out what's going on with you because what's going on with you is the only thing that you can offer me in the same way that I must figure out what's going on with me so I can offer you something better or at the very least appropriate to our exchange I think life will get a little bit better I don't like everybody I don't agree with everybody but check it out I don't like fighting with people I've been doing it with myself for a long time didn't win Hi, I'm Vimla Sara, President of the Buddhist Recovery Network. Our mission is to help promote the use of Buddhist teachings and practices to help people recover from the suffering caused by addictive and or compulsive behaviors. Our organization is a volunteer-run nonprofit which has expenses. We offer free monthly live teachings on the Academy free resources on our website, and all our podcasts are free. We also organize a bi-yearly summit where many of us come together. We rely on the generosity of you, our listeners, and our interviewees in order to produce these offerings. We are asking you to donate to help with our expenses. Thank you. And to show our gratitude for your support, all Patreon supporters will receive access to special guided meditations. To unlock these, please offer your support by going to patreon.com forward slash Buddhist Recovery Network. Again, patreon.com forward slash Buddhist Recovery Network. Thank you so much for your generosity. May all beings be free from the roots and the causes of suffering. May all beings be at peace. Mm.